is good to be back with you guys this morning. Uh, if you didn't know already, uh, my family and I took a much appreciated two week break uh, and did a road trip through the American Midwest, went up through Oklahoma, Kansas, uh, Texas, Arkansas, did kind of that that whole area. And you might be thinking, how much rest can you get on a road trip with small children? Which is why my wife and I will be taking a three-year cruise, all right, starting <laughs> starting next week. No, I'm kidding. We're, we're stuck with the road. But it was incredible. We did about 3,000 miles in our minivan. Uh, and so if you've ever done a road trip in a minivan, it looked like a bomb went off inside our car, all right? By the end of it, we couldn't even pack anything. We just, like, stuffed it in the window and rolled them up and just, like, it was... We left our last hotel in San Antonio, and the person helping us out the door, I'd back the van up to load everything more easily. And they were like, where are y'all moving to? What you, what you doing? Well, that's just the way we pack, all right? We're moving home. We're just, we're moving on. So it was incredible, but I had a... Great time, a time of relaxation, just a time to kind of unplug. And so I just want to say how much I appreciate uh, that from you guys. Just an awesome, awesome time I had just to kind of recharge uh, a little bit. And so I'm excited. I'm excited about this morning, excited about the season that we're going into. And I learned something on this road trip. I learned something driving all of those miles and seeing people in all these different states. And that is there are no good drivers anywhere. All right. They are not. It is not local to Louisiana. I used to think it was, but there are none. There are no good drivers throughout the med. In fact, they made me a worse driver because by the end of it, I'm just like cutting people off. No blinker, no nothing. It's just, there's a sermon in there somewhere, but that'll come, that'll come later. But it's good to be back. Go ahead and grab out your Bible and something to take some notes with. Come on. We believe in taking notes here at Victory. And we believe that the Holy Spirit will show us some things. You can jot those down. I encourage you throughout your life, not just on Sunday mornings, when you have your devotion, when you're driving in the car, our time of worship, when God shows you something, jot it down. If I could just give you one skill, one just kind of piece of advice, that is that your memory is not as good as your pencil, everybody, all right? And so if you would just jot those things down, you can reference those on your spiritual journey. You can begin to see that's what God did for me. And so I know that he's faithful and this is what he'll do in the future. And so it's just an awesome, awesome thing to do. And so I'm praying that the Holy Spirit would show you some things today. Of course, if you'd like to, you can pull up the Victory Church app. I uh, got it there with a fill-in-the-blank version of the notes. If you're watching online, you can download that as well. Uh, if you like fill in the blank, you like most of it to be given and you just put in those extra words, uh, we'll give all of that to you. All the verses are there as well. So I encourage you to do that uh, as we start today and study God's word. And I'm excited to end up this series uh, to bring the finale. But how many enjoyed the last three weeks, the last three parts of this series? Come on, how many... Man, I, I actually enjoy when I go away because I get to listen to the sermons that are brought in. It actually elevates the discourse. You guys know that, right? When I take a break, you guys get even better than what you're already getting. And so I just, I enjoyed these last three weeks just listening through them with Kirby and my dad doing those sermons. Just a blessing. I'm telling you, I grew and I learned and I know you guys did as well. And so honestly, I, I get excited when I have a chance to step away because it just pours into you guys all the more. It just helps you to learn even more and to step on that and just to begin uh, just to do. So I hope you took some notes in these last three. If you didn't, those are on the website to catch up in parts five, six and seven. But today we're finishing up the series through the crowd. And this has quickly become one of my favorite series that we do around here. This has become and we might do a version of this probably next year as well. Just looking at the people that Jesus ministered to. Because as much as we've talked about next week and at the movie starting and all this excitement, as excited as we are, and we are excited. It's an incredible time to minister and to evangelize. November around here, things just transform. It's incredible. I love it. I enjoy it so much. And if you're just a little on the fence, you feel like, well, I don't know if that's biblical. I don't know if I'm going to enjoy it. Come for the first week. Don't invite anybody. Just show up for that first week. And then I promise you, you'll realize how gospel-centered it is. It's an incredible time. We have a lot of fun. I promise you, I love those Sundays, but it is gospel centered. And you're going to see that all throughout the month of November. But as excited as we are, I'm not looking past this Sunday. I'm not looking past today's service because I believe that this series has been one. I told you when we started it, that all throughout, maybe week one, week four, week seven, somewhere in here, you would find your story. That the Bible says Jesus was surrounded by crowds everywhere he went. It was just a byproduct of his ministry. He was just surrounded, but he never saw the crowds as this means to fuel his popularity. He never saw the crowds as this somehow to get earthly fame. But it says that in all of it, he saw the crowds and he had compassion on them. And so I told you at some point in this series, might not have been week two, might not have been week four, might have been week six. Somewhere in this series, you would come to the realization that God sees you. 
That no matter where you are, no matter what you've done, no matter how far you think you've run, God sees you. And more than that, God knows you. That he knows you, that he knows your hidden parts. He knows the facade you put up to people, but he knows what's also hidden underneath. That God knows you're everywhere. He knows when you mess up. He knows when you come for repentance. God knows you. And above all of that, more than any of that, God loves you. That he loves you more than you can possibly imagine. More than you could, you have to have that realization at some point that God loves you more than you can possibly imagine. And so the Bible talks about that. It says Jesus had crowds surrounding him and in the midst of it, he saw them had compassion because they were like sheep without a shepherd. That in the midst of the crowd, Jesus could still see the individual. He could still reach out and touch an individual life. And so I believe that's true for your life as well. Believe that God sees you, that he knows you, that he loves you. And so Mark chapter eight is going to be our text today. This will be the story. You can join there in your Bible if you like. We'll have it up on the screen as well. But as we finish out the series, this last story, I want to go to Mark chapter 8, verse 22. And it says, Jesus and his crew, they come to Bethsaida, all right? They all roll up, the crowds, everybody. They bring the show to Bethsaida. And some people brought a blind man and they begged Jesus to touch him. So they bring this guy to Jesus at Bethsaida. They beg him to touch him. And he took the blind man, watch this, by the hand, and he led him outside of the village. And when he had spit on the man's eyes, we're going to come back to that, all right, everybody, and put his hands on him, Jesus asked him, do you see anything? And the man looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking around. They don't look like people. And once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes, and then his, his eyes were opened. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And Jesus sent him home saying, don't even go into the village. So this is our story for today. A lot of fun parts to it. You might have noticed a couple of parts you might skip over when you read your Bible. Sometimes you just kind of just graze right on past them. But a couple of parts I want to pull out. First principle I want you to see is this word restored. This restored. It means to bring back to its former state. Because the first principle I want you to see out of this story is this man was not born blind. This man at some point in his life, when you read this story, at some point in his life, it's the understanding that he had perfect sight. At some point in his life, he could see. At some point, he could see clearly. And then at another point in his life, it was taken from him. And so I want you to understand today as we study the story, in the same way this man is robbed of something in his natural life, in the same way he had something and it was then taken from him, what I want us to begin to understand today, in the same way many of us start something with clear clarity or vision or hope, and then along the way somewhere it's robbed from us. So many of us start with this idea. We start with maybe a hope of great spirituality or or this great hope for our marriage or this great hope for raising our children or this great hope for our careers. We start with that. And then somewhere along the way, the devil comes and begins to steal it from us, begin to be robbed of it. At some point along the way, just like this man, a sickness creeps in or, or something happens, an event that occurs to us or around us. Something happens that then robs us of what we started with. Something begins to steal that vision from our life to erase the hope. And so we see on this story that Jesus takes this man on a journey to reclaim that sight, to restore it. And I love this word restore. We see it all throughout these stories, probably probably six or seven out of the eight weeks that it uses this word to restore, that it was restored to them. And I believe it's the same kind of journey that you and I have to take. I think in the same way that Jesus restores this man's sight, it's the same type of journey because I believe God wants to do a miracle in your life. I don't know where your theology lands on all of that, but I'll say it again. I believe God wants to do a miracle in your life. That I believe that God can see through the crowd, that God still sees you. That he's not the God who is far away, he's the God who is close. And we're going to talk about that in just a moment. So in verse 23... We see Jesus takes the man by his hand and he leads him outside of the village. A couple of principles I want you to jot down if you're taking notes. First of all, jot it down. He needs to take us to his place. Wherever that may look like in your life, wherever it is he needs to get you, he's going to get you to the place where he can speak to you. He's going to take you to his place because he grabs this man by the hand and he says, look, I'm going to do a miracle in your life, but I can't do it here in the village. And the Bible doesn't tell us exactly why. It gives us some hints as to why Jesus takes him out of this village. But Jesus, for whatever reason, can't do the miracle there in the village. And Kirby talked about it a couple of weeks ago, another place that Jesus looked at them and was amazed at their unbelief and couldn't do any miracles in their area because of their unbelief. So we don't know what the reason was, but for whatever it was, Jesus said, I can't do it here. 
It's not going to happen here in the village. It's not going to happen in the place of blindness. It's not going to happen in this place of familiarity. Whatever the reason, I need you to take you out of the village. And so Jesus, in our lives as well, when there's something he needs to speak to us, he's going to get us to his place to be able to understand. He says, look, I've got to take you out. And one of them, one of the reasons, I believe, God has to get our attention to give us his direction. God has to get our attention in order to give us his direction. Because I think so many times we pray, Lord, I want clarity in my life. God, I want vision in my life. Give me direction. And God says, I'd love to do it, but you're not going to hear it where you are. You're not going to hear it in that job. You're not going to hear it in that environment that you've stuck yourself in. You're not going to hear it in that place where you are. I've got to get your attention to give you the direction. There's too many distractions in the setting that you're in. I think so oftentimes we surround ourselves with those distractions. Then we cry out to God, speak to me. There's too many competing voices. There's too many things vying for our attention. I told you we spent a few thousand miles together as a family with our kids. And my kids are eight, seven, and four, everybody. All right? So those are great ages for chaos. Those are just the ages that, that our, our lives on a normal day are just chaotic. Much less, you know, stuffed into a car. But it's just chaos. And there's one of our children that just, he just likes to incite the chaos a little more than all the rest of them. All right? He just, it's just something that I've noticed as his parent that I've noticed that one just kind of loves it a little bit more than the rest. And so usually if there is chaos or usually if I walk into the room and there is just utter pandemonium, I know who's going to be at the center of it. I know that one. And so they're just kind of and he's gotten a little better as he's gotten older, but he is so full of emotion and just just passion. And it will serve him well as an adult. But as a child, it's just fairly exhausting. All right, everybody. It really just it just is. But we just sometimes when I come into the midst of it, I just got to get on his level. And try to get his attention just to be like, buddy, you know, you got you to stop all this. You got you to kind of calm down. You got to do it. And if you've met my son, he just kind of, he's just all like, he's got to see what's going on. Like he's not interested in the, the direction of his father. All right. He's just not, he's got to see everything that's going on all around him. And so I'll have to like get like sometimes just down on his level. Like I'll grab his face and be like, look, look at me. Like you just got to understand. It. And he'll just do one of these. Like just, you know, like, like, look, and just got to. And so as a parenting principle, we've had to learn that I've got to separate him from the pandemonium. Got to get him out of the chaos, maybe to a back bedroom, somewhere that's quiet. Got to get him out of that so I can look him in the eye, have his attention and say, buddy, you can't do all this. You can't talk back like that. You can't choke your brother just because he exists. Come on, somebody. You can't, you can't steal your sister's Peppa Pig or whatever it is. You can't, you can't do all those things. I got to get his attention to give him direction. I think sometimes the battle for us receiving vision and clarity from God, the battle for us in hearing God's voice is a battle for our attention. It's a battle for our attention. It's a battle to, to silence the distractions and to hear the voice of God. And so they have so many different things going on around us. In fact, in Hebrews, the Bible says, don't be sure and be careful that you don't resist the one that is speaking to you. Be careful you don't resist that because I think so often... That in times of misclarity or times where things aren't clear to us, I think so often it's not that God has stopped speaking. He hasn't stopped speaking, everybody. It's that we've stopped listening. It's that we let the distractions creep in to where we don't even hear the voice of God anymore. And so we're crying out for clarity, but we've stopped listening to the voice of God. There's too many competing voices. That's why, by the way, when God calls Moses, you read that account in the Old Testament when God gets Moses and he begins to give him his next chapter and he begins to call him at the burning bush. You read the account. It says when God saw that he had got Moses's attention, God began to speak, which in my holy imagination and you don't have to write this down. This is just my holy imagination. There must have been several burning bushes along Moses's way, several different types of things like that. And God finally saw that the burning bush got Moses's attention. Like he must have been calling him in all these days because Moses sat there a long time and he says when he saw he had Moses' attention, then God began to speak, which is just biblical proof, everybody, that men are obsessed with setting things on fire. That's just biblical. You can write that one down if you like. Scott and I figured that out this week at the at the Academy Outdoor, the, uh, the open house this past week. We had a massive, about 25-foot bonfire in the back. Come on, somebody. It was incredible. It was spiritual. It was a moment, all right? We had... We had that thing going. And Scott luckily knew how to keep it from burning down the neighborhood and like burning everything down. Or else I might have been like the Apostle Paul writing to you from jail, everybody. All right. We just, we had a moment, but we just obsessed, but that's not part of it. When it says that he got Moses's attention, God has to get our attention to give us his direction. He's waiting to give us his vision, his direction. But it's a journey not only to get our attention, but also to make us a little bit more flexible or pliable gets him out of the village, God will take us to his place to make sure that we are pliable. Because I think sometimes when we get stuck in a place of familiarity, as full of pain as it might be, 
we become inflexible to God. When we get stuck in a place of comfort or familiarity, even if it's a place of uncomfort, even if it's a place where we experience pain, if we're comfortable in that, oftentimes we get set and we become inflexible to the hand of God. We become inflexible to what God wants to speak to us. In fact, sometimes we like to stay in that place. And maybe you've met somebody like that. Never you, right? Never, never you. But maybe you know someone like that who's stuck in a place of pain, but they seem to want to stay there. And you read in the gospel sometime, one of the stories that I love to read where Jesus goes up to a man and he's about to heal him. And he asks him, do you want to be well? Do you, do you want to get well? And I always wonder why Jesus would ask him. Of course, the man wants to, but I've seen in my life, in my own self, but I've also seen in those around me. Sometimes we get stuck in that place and we kind of like the pain. We kind of like that, that victim card that we can play in that particular spot. And so we don't listen to the direction of God and we get stuck and inflexible to what he wants to do in our life. God will take us to his place oftentimes to make us pliable. Because we have to go through this journey and there's to take us into some places that are a bit uncomfortable for us to go. In fact, Isaiah 64 kind of lays out what this looks like. It says he is the potter and we are the clay. Sometimes it's uncomfortable to be the clay. Sometimes it's just not what we like to be the clay, but it says that's what we are, that God is shaping and molding by his hands. And that can't happen when we're stiff and rigid, when we get all dried out and set in our own ways. We don't listen to the voice of God. We don't really want God's perspective. And so God takes us on a journey. And then our text says in the next verse, right in that, he says, when he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, then he asked him, do you see anything? (laughs) To which a cynical and jaded person would have been like, you just spit on me, bro. Like, what do you mean? Do I see anything? Like, I'm blind, but I'm not stupid, right? You just spit in my face. Yes, are you kidding me? Can I see anything? Come on, I think sometimes we just gloss over these stories. Jesus spit in this man's face and then asked him, point blank, do you see anything? Like, let, let's put yourself in this story for a Because I think we read these stories and we just kind of read these stories. I don't think we actually put ourselves in them to imagine what this might... Imagine for me, come on, let's, let's use our imagination. Imagine for me, you come to victory, you're visiting, all right? You come on a Sunday morning... You show up to church, you're like, we're going to go to church, we're going to go receive what God has for us. And sometime in the worship service or afterwards, you hear like, come up for prayer. We're going to have our prayer team up here, we want to pray for you, come on up. And you're like, we need a touch of God in like our finances or our career. Like we want God to touch our lives, we need God to touch our marriage or our families. Come on, we're going, and you got everybody, we're going up for prayer. And let's say you come up here to the altar, we got our prayer team member up here and the worship music is going, it's fantastic. And you come up, you're like, listen, we need some prayer right now for our lives. Come on, God, I just need God to touch. We're just ready for the move. We're ready for that. And that prayer team member, <laughs> come on, somebody, hauls off like this. How many of you are going to actually be, that prayer team member gets ready to spit. How many of you are going to be like, yes, Lord, I receive it. Come on, I just, right now, just holy spit. Right now, I just receive. Come on, just, just give it. How many of you are going to be, no, you're going to be like, is this guy about to spit on me? Like, I said, we're going to have a ruckus at Victory Harvest Church. We're going about to have just a throw down. Come on, everybody. We'd be truthful in God's house today. How many of you are not standing there thinking, I'm so happy that he spit on me? I'm so happy that Jesus spit in my face. I'm so just, I'm, a, I'm ecstatic about this. And yet Jesus spits on this guy, and then he asks him, do you see anything? Is there anything that you see? Come on, I can tell you're a fan of that right now, all right? This, but do you see anything? But listen to me, everybody, and this is the point I want to draw from this. Because I think sometimes we skip over this verse. Some of you don't like this verse. Jesus spits in his face. This is oftentimes how God moves in our life. This is oftentimes how God, and I just want to warn you, if you're praying that God would do a miracle, you're praying that God would do something incredible in your life, he wants to do the miracle. He wants to see it come to pass in your life. But sometimes he might spit in your face. Put that on your bumper sticker and drive around Baton Rouge. Come on, somebody. How many of you ever prayed a prayer like that? God, I want you to move in my life. God, I want you to transform me into something incredible that I would have an impact on people's life. God, I want you to do all that you have for me. And then about a split second later, your life gets turned upside down. And you're like, whoa, 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 God, I don't know what this is. This isn't what I wanted. This isn't what I was expecting. This is not something that gets a little bit messy. Now, let me just be clear with you today. God is not the author of evil in your life. God is all good and the devil is all bad. And we need to address that theology right on the face of it. But I do want you to know when God begins to move in your life, when God begins to turn some things, begins to mold and change some things, it gets a little bit messy. His process oftentimes is not what we would like it to be. In fact, I can speak with confidence and say it's almost never what we would like it to be. 
The way that God molds and shapes us, the way that he moves us into what he wants us to become is almost never the process that we want to go through. That we want to happen. This guy comes to Jesus. These people are begging Jesus to touch him. And Jesus spits in his face and asks him, do you see anything? The reality is God takes us through this journey. And I just want you to know as well, if you've gotten discouraged or you've lost hope, that oftentimes your journey doesn't look like anybody else's. It's the reason why you can't hear somebody preach a sermon about five steps to get a miracle because they received a miracle in a certain way. Or read somebody's books about 10 steps that I received and you can do these exact 10 things and you'll get a miracle. That's why you can't see those things. The disciples didn't bottle up magical Jesus spit, everybody, and then go on television and sell it to you for your blindness healing, all right? That's just, come on, you can laugh in church. You understand that, right? Like that's just, that's not what they did because it's different. God works in different ways. This is something incredible Jesus is doing. But this blind man has to be, he has to be, honestly, he has to be willing to go through this process. And he preached two weeks ago about blessed is the one who's not offended because of me. Come on, somebody. I would be offended at this point. I would be, I came to Jesus. I, I kind of stuck myself out there and now Jesus spit on my eyes. And he's asking me, do I see anything? And we'll talk about that in just a minute. But this is the idea I have for you today. That is too often we focus too much on the miracle. I have to focus on the master and not the miracle. So oftentimes we're, we're after the miracle and so we're going to do all the 10 or 12 steps and we're going to do all these things and we forget about the master. But Jesus wants to do something. I told you at the beginning, I believe he wants to do a miracle in your life. He has to take us through his process. Verse 25, at the end of the story, his eyes were open and his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. So he's going to take us to his place. So he wants to take us through a process. Why? Because his goal is to give us his perspective. So he takes us to his place. He takes us through his process. And sometimes it doesn't look how we would like it to be because he wants to give us his perspective. He wants to give us his perspective. Why? Because the goal is he's trying to give us. And I love this thought that he wants to give us his perspective. Because he sees from a vantage point that we don't see. I think so oftentimes in my life, several times when I have lost vision or lost hope in a certain situation... Or lost it when I go to God with this idea that I, I can't see what my next step is. Or I'm praying that God would just deliver or just show me. Give some clarity. So oftentimes in my own life when I prayed those prayers, I love this idea that no matter how confused I am. No matter how unclear the path looks like to me. No matter how dark it seems to me. That God is never confused. That God is never, I never go to God with this idea like, Lord, I messed up and Lord, I took the wrong turn. I just don't know what to do. And God is never like, whew, <laughs> like, I, I don't know what to do there either, buddy. Well, that's bad. You messed up there. I don't know what you, you just said. We got problems now. Like, I don't, I don't understand. God is never like that. God is never like, well, I got to get with the team and get back with you, right? Like, I just don't understand. I don't know. You messed up really bad. We got to like, we got to circle the wagons and figure out what we're going to do in this situation. God's never like that. Because the God you and I serve knows the beginning from the end. He's the Alpha and the Omega. The Bible says he's the author and the perfecter of our faith. He is the Alpha and Omega. God, the God that we serve, we go to him because he has a perspective. He has a vantage point. He sees the end from the beginning. God knows all. And so he has a plan that is unfolding. And so when I run to him in these times of misclarity, I run to him these times when I don't have a vision. I go to him to receive what the plan is that he's unfolding. I go to him to ask, not that I'm going to him with my agenda and say, Lord, would you just work these things out? No, I'm going to him to get what my next decision should be, to get clarity on what my next step should be. God, I want to know what your perspective is. He wants to give us his perspective. That's why Romans 12 says, don't copy the behaviors and the customs of this world. You know why it says it like that? Because we do. The reason he words it this way, don't do this, is because all of us do it. So oftentimes we copy what the world does. We try to live our marriages like the world does. We try to raise our kids like the world does. We try to try to live our lives and our careers like the world does. And we wonder why it doesn't work. Because the world doesn't have the answer. So we go to God to get his perspective. Don't be conformed to the patterns of this world. Don't try to do life like the world does. But watch this. Be transformed. Let God transform you into a new person by changing the way that you think. Let him transform you by changing the way that you think. You know why it says that? Because belief drives behavior. Your beliefs subconsciously or consciously drive your behavior. The way that you think drives the way that you act. And so you have to get that right. You have to have God transform the way that you think. Everything in your life can be traced back to a belief, subconsciously or consciously. The way that you live out your spirituality is based upon your belief about God. The way that you believe him to be your perspective of him. It's why it's so important to see Jesus for who he truly is. 
that he loves you more than you can possibly imagine, to get that revelation of him. Oh, that you would know, Paul says, the love of Christ. That neither height nor depth, that anything, nothing could separate you from God. That nothing could bring you from his love. Nothing could pluck you out of his hand. That you would have somewhere along your spiritual journey, have that revelation that you have a God who loves you more than you could possibly imagine. Who pursues you. Because if you don't have that truthful revelation of him, it will affect the way that you live. It will affect the way that you approach the throne. It will affect the way that you pray. It will affect everything about your spirituality. Do you know the way that you act in your marriage, subconsciously or consciously, is affected by your beliefs and the things that shaped you leading into it? The things that you brought into that, the way that you, the way you act with your money. Come on, somebody, we're going to talk about money in church. The way that you act, the way that you're generous towards others is affected by the way that you view the world and your source. All right, is God your source or are you your source? Because it's great to say God is my source. It's great to say that with our lips. But the way that we live shows that we think we are our source. That we think we are the backup plan. That we are the way that we make a way in this world. And so the way we treat others, the way that we're generous to others without letting the rest of the world see, the way that we reach out shows the very root of our heart. Shows beliefs that we hold deeply held and that can't be changed until we change the way that we think. The way that we think. And so God will take us on a journey one of these days. I don't know where you are on that. But God will take us on this journey that's teaching us a lesson every step of the way, reorchestrating and working to transform our lives, to give us his perspective. So what do we do about that? How do we do that in our lives? What does it look like if you're struggling for vision or for hope in a situation? What does that look like in our lives? What do we need to do? I think there are some principles from this same story that we can then put into practice. Because if it doesn't work on Monday, it doesn't work on Sunday, everybody. All right. So some principles that we could do. Number one, jot it down if you're taking notes. You've got to stay connected to people. If we go all the way back to the beginning of this story, we've got to stay connected to people because the devil's goal is to get you into isolation. I will die on this hill. The devil's goal is to get you into isolation, to keep you disconnected from the people of God. He will drive every wedge he can think of to keep you disconnected. He will bring every attack. And I promise you, there is a move even inside of the church to drive Christians against Christians. Tell you, we have fought long enough, everybody, all right? We need to unite it. We have fought long enough for hundreds of years now within the church, thousands of years, he has come to drive a wedge between Christians. That's why one of the things in my heart that's so deep is when I see Christian fighting against Christian, when all of us serve the same Savior, when all of us believe Jesus died and was crucified and rose again, and we are all trying to make that and to preach that gospel to the world, and yet he still tries to come and drive a wedge. If the enemy tries to bring it between. So join with me. We're going to attack this in every pocket of the church that we can. If you ever see, we're trying to drag down our own church. We're trying to bring down the name of Jesus. And the world looks at that and they think, well, you got nothing different than what I got. Why would I want that? They look at us fighting and backbiting and gossiping. They look at that in the church and they think, I don't want any part to do with that. I promise you, you will never harm your witness more. And so we have to have this front. We have to believe. We have to begin to follow Jesus. We've set our eyes on him. We recognize none of us are perfect. All of us are following a perfect savior. All of us are following after him. First one, we got to take connected to people. Don't let the wedges be driven. Because watch this in verse 22. It says, there were some people who brought this. We don't even know their names. They don't even call them friends. It just says some people brought this blind man to Jesus and they begged him to touch him. They beg Jesus. I want you to know that there are times in your life when you're going to need people around you to beg God on your behalf. There are times in your life, I promise you, if you haven't been there already, there are times where you will not have the strength to call out to God on your own. That you need people around you to begin to cry out for your healing, to cry out for your freedom, to cry out for your redemption, to cry out for you. You're going to need people around you to begin to cry out. Why? Because disorientation thrives in isolation. Devil wants to get you isolated so he can disorient you. I promise you, you will never, you will never get all that God has for you in isolation. And the devil wants to get you because in isolation is where things begin to die. In isolation is where things begin to wither because you don't have that support around you. You don't have those people surrounding and supporting and lifting you up. And so in isolation is when you go crazy. When you don't have that sounding board to begin to just talk and to begin to say things and process life through. To have this group of believers around you that can speak into your life in those moments. And you'll begin to believe these crazy lies about yourself when you get isolated. You begin, the devil begin to whisper those lies into your mind. You begin to think, well, I am alone. 
And I'm not worth anything. And you begin to believe these crazy lies. Well, I, I'll never do anything for the kingdom of God. And my children will never serve the Lord. And I'll never, I'll never come back from this. I'll never be free from that addiction. I'm not worth anything. You begin to believe those lies when you get into isolation. Instead, if you have people around you, you stay connected. Do you have believers around you that can speak in somebody in your life that can say to you, when you're saying those things, they can speak to you and say, you know, that's a lie, right? Like, I know we're, we're processing life together here, but you know that what you said is a lie. You know that you actually do have worth and value. You know that you actually are beautiful. You know that you actually do have a gifting from God. You know God actually has his hand on your life. You know that you actually are worth something. You know, Jesus gave his life for you. You have value. You have something to do in this life. God loves you more than you can imagine. You need that in your life. You got to have that. Come on, about 10 of us awake in this Baptist church today. Come on, somebody. We are, you need that in your life. You got to have godly people who speak into you. Because you get into isolation, things start to die. It's what this church is about. If you don't have somebody like that in your life, get into a small group. Get into a small group because there are countless people who want to pour into you, who want to let you know that you are worth fighting for, that you are worth something, that you do have purpose, that God has his hand on you, that God sees you, that he loves you, that God wants to stand with you, that God loves you more than you could imagine. You need that in your life. You got to have people. Why? Because Proverbs 17 says there's a friend that loves at all time. A brother is born for adversity. You know, adversity is when you need friends. That's when you need people around. You don't need them in the mountaintops. You don't need them in the la-di-da's of life. You need people in adversity who are going to come around you, are going to strengthen you, going to lift you up, going to beg Jesus to touch you in your behalf. You got to have those people around you fighting for you because sometimes you can't fight for yourself. And maybe you're at a place where you've lost hope. You got to surround people who are around yourself with people who will have hope for you, bring you to Jesus and beg him to touch you. You got to have people that, number two, if you're going to recover your vision, you got to stay committed to the journey. This one may be the most difficult of all that we talk about today. You got to stay committed in the journey. You got to say, you know what? No matter what happens, it doesn't matter if God does it in my way or in my timing. I'm going to stay committed to his journey. I'm going to stay committed to what he wants to do in my life. Verse 23 says, first of all, he takes him by the hand and leads him outside of the village. That could have been like, this guy could have been like, look, I'm blind. I don't know where you're leading me. Like, I don't, I don't go places with strangers, right? I just don't go. Like, he could have been, I don't know this place that we're going. Like, you might be taking me out to rob me. I don't understand, like, what's happening. He's got, this guy is blind. This guy is being led out by the hand outside of everywhere that he knows. He could have been like, I don't know if I'm going to find my way back. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what the next step is going to be. And little does he know what the next step is going to be. But he gets taken out of the village. And he says, you're taking me out. But we have to stay committed in this relationship with God. That even if it doesn't look how I want it to look. He came to have Jesus lay his hands on it. Even if it doesn't look how I want it to look. Even if the process and the journey isn't how I want it to be. I'm going to stay committed because I know God has a plan for my life. I'm going to stay committed. Because he has a plan. One of my favorite stories, we talked about it this morning during worship, the story of Joseph. We sang that song that he turns all the things that the devil intended for harm, he turned to the good. The story of Joseph. And this is honestly, I, I, will, I could preach this story every single Sunday. Because Joseph grew up in a family betrayed by his brothers and thrown into a pit. And you think that's bad enough. He was taken out of the pit and sold into slavery. And then he was betrayed by the owner's wife and thrown into the prison. Come on, somebody. And then he was betrayed by his friends in the prison and left to rot there. And yet God turned all of it. God used all of it. God took every single spot of it and God used it to propel him to the palace. He used it for that. And Joseph said, you, you, what you meant to harm me, God used for good. And you go back and you study that story and you say, well, why? Why would that happen for Joseph? And it's because Joseph kept his heart right before God. You read every season of that in the story. If you want to read the account of the Old Testament in Genesis, it says in every season, God, Joseph kept his heart. It says God was with Joseph. And then it got to the next act of betrayal. And then it ends with God was with Joseph. And then it gets to where he's left to rot. It says, but God was with Joseph. You say, well, why? Why was God with Joseph? He kept his heart right before God. James 4 says, we draw near to God. He'll draw near to us. Joseph kept his heart right, even in the midst of this journey that none of us would understand. Even in the midst of this process that none of us would be happy with. Joseph kept his heart right before God. Joseph kept his heart and it says God was with Joseph. You have to remember that God is all good and the devil is all bad. And sometimes we get that confused. Sometimes the devil will do things in our lives and we're tempted to blame God for it. We say, well, God, you, why did you allow it? You may not have caused it, but why did you allow that thing? 
I don't understand in this moment. But I want you to understand, and it's a hard truth to understand, but as you read your Bibles, you read the accounts, I want you to get this idea that we are not called to understand everything. And honestly, that's one of the, the most difficult steps to take on your Christian journey, that we are not called to understand it all. That you see in this, it doesn't say that God was with Joseph and Joseph magically understood in that moment. And God was with Joseph and Joseph came to great clarity in the midst of his prison cell. Well, the Bible just says that God was with Joseph. And sometimes we have to come to that realization. I might not understand it all, but God is with me. I may not understand everything that's happening to me, but I know that my God is with me. I know that he's with me. I know that he's for me. So we're not called to understand. We are called to faithfulness and to trust. And we're called to obedience. Even in the midst of the journey. And so this man trusted and then his faith is tested again. Verse 23, because Jesus spits in his face and asks him, do you see anything? And so he's already come out of the village. He's already followed a little bit. But now he's got to trust because Jesus spits on him and says, do you see it? It's a tough question because in that moment, he probably felt pretty insignificant. He probably felt pretty marginalized. But I would also like to remind you that every other person in Scripture that Jesus lays his hand on was healed the first time Jesus laid his hands on them. Every other person was healed the first time Jesus prayed for him. And so Jesus touches him and then asks him this question, do you see anything? And all of a sudden he's faced with the reality of the fact that he doesn't see clearly. Like it's all culminating to this. He's okay, okay, he spit on me. But then he suddenly realizes, I don't see clearly. These people, they, they brought me to Jesus. I finally, I'm here. I have the audience with the master. He's done what he wanted to do. He's asked me now, do I see anything? He comes to the realization that he does not see. What's his response going to be? Imagine the pressure this guy is under. Imagine the pressure. He's probably, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with my faith? What, what's wrong with, with, my, with me? What's wrong that I can't get healed on the first time? What's wrong with me that Jesus does what he wants to do to try to heal me? And yet he says to Jesus, honestly... In the midst of this pressure, he says, to, he stays honest. He says, I see people, but they look like trees walking around. So I, I, I kind of see, Jesus, I, I think you did a pretty good job, but it's like I give you like 65%. That's gutsy, everybody. That's kind I don't know about you. That's pretty intimidating. Jesus, I don't know if you quite did it right. I don't, just don't know, Jesus. I have some, some pointers for you next time. You know, you would do like, like his friends could be like, are you kidding me? Right? Like we, we dragged you to Jesus. We finally, we got you here and you can't even get healed on the first time. Like what's wrong with you? Like most people, Jesus doesn't even see. Like he just speaks the word and hundreds of miles away, like they're healed. And you got, you got prayed for and you can't even be healed. What's wrong with you? Embarrassing your friends like that. Imagine this guy, this situation he's been put on. He risked being spit on again. Come on, somebody. Like, I don't see that well. Like, I just, <laughs> like you're going to kick me this time? Like, I don't know what's going to happen. Like, I don't understand. I don't know what the process of escalation is here. Like, I just don't. This guy risked a lot in this moment. He just trusted the process. I'm telling you, church, you got to be faithful in the journey. You got to trust in the process. You got to begin to be faithful to this. And you got to be honest all along the way. Because this is just something, one of the things I want to again confront is just this lie from the pit of hell that you have to act like you have it all together. That somehow because you stepped inside the church doors, you have to somehow act like everything is going right in your life. I just want to address that because I think this is something that creeps up in our lives, that this is supposed to be kind of the show we put on. That when somebody, somebody asks you and they say, are you okay? You say, I'm okay. Everything's good. Stop pretending like it's all okay when it's not okay. If I could just give you some pastoral advice, everybody. When it's not okay, don't act like it is. When it's only 65%, don't act like everything's hunky-dory, everything's great. Don't act like this. This should be a church. When somebody asks you, are you okay? It's okay to tell them, no, I'm not. I can't see. No, I'm not okay. I'm going through this addiction. No, I'm not okay. I'm struggling with this in my marriage. No, I'm not okay. My kids are going through this. No, I'm not okay. I can't see. You have to be able to be honest along the journey or it's never going to do us any good. And so this guy, feel this intimidation, this stuff around him. He could have been like, it's great. It's great. Everything's good. I see 65%. That's fine. That's great. I thank you, Jesus, for all that you did. I'm great. I'm going home. That's all that happened. Because it's a problem that has risen. I've seen it in church time and time again that we try to say, I'm fine. And everything's burning to the ground behind us. We try to put up the facade. Everything's okay. It's okay to say, no, I'm not. I need prayer. I need you to join with me. I need your help. I can't see. 
I need you to join your faith with mine. I need you to bring me to Jesus. I need you to beg him to touch me. I need to be honest about what I'm going through. We began to share those things. It happened in the Old Testament. Jeremiah, it says, my people, this is the, the spiritual leaders dress the wounds of my people as though it were not serious. And they say, peace, peace, but there is no peace. You will never have peace in your life until you're honest on the journey. Be able to say, I'm going through this. I'm walking through this and I need you to join your faith to mine. I'm going through this addiction and I need you to be, I need healing. I need God's power. I need you to, because it's a trick of the enemy. Listen to me to keep you stuck. This idea that you need to be okay is a trick of the enemy to keep you stuck in whatever it is you're stuck in, to keep you in your chains of bondage, to trick of the enemy. Keep you you got to say, listen, I can't see because listen, this is the caution I want to give you church. This man could have lived the rest of his life at 65 percent. Could have lived the rest of his life at 65 percent. Could have gone the rest of it without, but he was honest in the journey. And so now Jesus does the miracle in his life. Watch this in verse 25. Jesus laid his hands on him. And then his vision was restored. It was faithfulness to the journey. And he saw everything clearly. It was honesty in the process that got him to the place of clarity. God wants to do a miracle in your life. The other thing we have to do, you have to have this miracle in your life. You have to be honest on the journey. And this should be a church. Let me tell you right now, don't, don't go telling everybody, all right? Don't be a basket case to the mailman, all right? That's just not what I'm talking about. But when you get in an environment in your small group or with those friends around you that speak biblical truth and the love of Jesus into your life, that's when you begin to open up and say, okay, I need your help. I need you to help me join your faith with mine. And then the third thing is, as we close, he said, you got to do this. You got to stay clear of the pitfalls. You got to stay clear of the pitfalls. So I want you to know as soon as God does a miracle in your life, the devil's going to try to come and steal it away. As soon as God sets you free from something, the devil's going to try to steal it back out. As soon as God does the miracle, the devil's going to try to take it back away from you. God knows this. That he's trying to do. It says the devil's the author of lies. He's been doing it for a long time, everybody, and he's really, really good at it. That he's going to try to steal away what God has done in your life. He's going to try to bring a lie that it's not, it's not actually God that did that. It's just a coincidence. You're not actually free from that. It's just a season. God didn't actually do the miracle. It's just, it's not, it's just a coincidence that that happened. It's not going to, you're never going to actually be free. You try to bring those lies into your life. And if you don't stay clear of the pitfalls, you won't know that he's coming. You won't understand that in the midst of that, that he's trying to come and to steal that away from you. That it's not actually a miracle. God doesn't do miracles. He's trying to put that lie into your life. That he, he doesn't do that. He might have done it for other people, but he would never do it for you. Nobody, nobody loves or likes you. God doesn't even like. He begins to put those lies after God does the miracle and sets you free. You've got to stay clear of the pitfalls. When God sets you free, don't go back to the place of blindness. Because he tells this guy at the end, he says, don't even go back to the, don't even go into the village. When God sets you free, don't go back to the place of blindness. Don't go back to the old patterns. Don't go back to the old environments. Don't go back to those friends that you know are going to drag you back into whatever it was. When God sets you free, don't go back to the place of blindness. Don't go back to the village. When God sets you free, don't go back. He tells this guy, he tells him, don't even go into the village. Listen to me, church. It's imperative that you hold on to the miracle. It's imperative that you hold on to what God has done in your life. It's imperative that you keep a hold of that and listen to me, not just because of what God has done for you. Not just because God wants to see you healed and whole and free, and he does. But it's imperative you hold on to that miracle because of the people God wants to touch through your life now that you've been set free. Now that you've been set free, God wants to do a miracle in your life, not because of you, not just because you get to be whole and free, not just because you get to spend eternity, not just because of all of that, but because of the people he wants to touch on the other side. God does that miracle in your life. It's about the people he wants to touch. In the early 1900s, there was a little boy, nine years old, living in the country of Armenia. And during the midst of the genocide by the Turks in that time period, he watched his entire family be murdered for their faith in Christ. In fact, he stood hand in hand with his mother as they brought them down to the river and they asked all of them to deny Christ or die. And that little nine-year-old boy was stolen out of the line by one of the soldiers. And he was hidden in a cave nearby as one by one his mother and his father, his entire family, each made the decision to die for their faith in Jesus. 
And the little boy was sold into slavery instead. The soldier wanted to make money off of him. And so he lived three years as a slave in Syria, starved and beaten and abused and mistreated. And every day for those three years, he would pray, Jesus of my mother, please help me. Jesus of my mother, please help me. And they would beat him within an inch of his life. And he'd pray, Jesus of my mother, please help me. Until one day he ran. And for three days without food or water, he crossed Syria. Until finally he could go no further. And he crawled onto a rock and he got ready to die. And one more time he prayed, Jesus of my mother, please help me. And at that moment, he saw three men walking near him. And there were three Mennonite missionaries sent from the States to, to help the refugees after World War I. And they went to pass him by thinking he was already dead. Until one of the men saw the boy move. And so they picked him up and they carried him to an orphanage nearby that had been built for the children found in that desert. And he married a girl in that orphanage and they moved to Aleppo, Syria and then a refugee camp in Beirut. So they moved his family to Jerusalem to the poorest valley in Palestine. And the family fell on hard times, and so he pulled his sons out of the school so that they could work to bring in money for food. And the second oldest son began to work in a shoekeeper shop. Twelve hours a day, six days a week, a dollar a day. Began to work sewing shoes. Fourteen years old. But he would keep a New Testament in front of him and he would read it and he would pray and remember the God of his grandmother and the Jesus that had saved his father. And one day, 15 years old, a dollar a day in that dark shoe shop, he heard God's voice saying, you're going to preach the gospel. And known by no one, not have any prospects in life, not even gone to school, he began to ask God how. And one day that shoekeeper came in and saw that New Testament open in front of him. And he knocked that New Testament onto the ground and he slapped that boy across the face and he said, don't you ever bring that in here. And he left that shop and began to preach the Jesus of his grandmother. Anywhere he could, he began to preach the Jesus that had saved his father, he began to preach the Jesus that he knew. And he spent his life bringing the gospel to countless hundreds of thousands of people began to preach the gospel over a hundred countries and six continents on this earth. Began to preach the name of Jesus, built churches and schools and orphanages. Preached the name of Jesus before kings and parliaments. Preached the gospel all over this world. His name was Samuel Doctorian. That's my grandfather. Listen to me, church, that little boy laying on the rock waiting to die. The miracle God did in his life wasn't about him. The miracle God did in his life, the miracle he did setting him free wasn't just about him being set free. wasn't just about him being rescued. It was about the generations after him that would serve the Lord. It's about the countless lives that would be changed because of the miracle God did. Listen to me, church, it's imperative that you keep the miracle God does in your life, but not just about you. Not just about what God is doing, but that God would use you to reach thousands of others around you. God has a purpose for your life. That he wants to do something incredible to reach those around you. Listen, church, I know that it's hard in this jaded culture today to believe that God still does miracles. But I promise you, Hebrews 13 says that our Jesus is the same yesterday, today and forever. And the same miracle he did 2,000 years ago, he wants to do in your life today. Every head bowed, every eye closed as we pray today. Father, I thank you. I thank you for every person here. I thank you for every person watching online. Every person listening today. I thank you for the miracle you want to do in their lives. God, I thank you as you give us new hope and new vision and new encouragement. God, I pray, Lord. Give us the sight and the vision, God, to see the miracle you're doing. Not only for us, but for the lives you want to touch. I thank you, God, for all that you're doing. Lord, we praise you. We thank you. Lord, we receive new vision, new clarity today. I want to pray that God would do that miracle. I want to pray if you're in a place that you feel stuck. You're in a place that you feel blinded. You're in a place that you, you just can't see the hope or the vision God has for your life. I want to pray for you. 
Before I do that, though, there are some of you here and you say, I've always lived without being deceived. I've always lived with that blindness. I've always lived without clarity. I haven't seen God's will for my life because I'm so far away from him. Or maybe you say, I've never had that relationship with him. I've never called on Jesus. I've never been saved. I want you to know you can have that today. Every head bowed, every eye closed, but I want you to know that right now, Jesus sees you. And no one else may know the things you're going through. Nobody else may see beyond the facade. Nobody else may see beyond this face that you put up, but Jesus knows you. Jesus sees all that you've done. He's seen every mistake. And I want you to know he still loves you more than you could possibly imagine. He loves you. I don't care what you've done. I don't care where you've been. I don't care who you are. Jesus loves you. And he wants you. He's calling you. I want you to know even in a place of blindness, even when you've lost sight of Jesus, he's never lost sight of you. He still wants you until today. If you want to make that decision, you say, I want to be saved. I want to give my life to him. I want the miracle of salvation to happen in my life. I want you to know that can happen right now. Starts with a prayer of surrender. It'd be my honor to help you pray that. Every head is bowed. But right now, if you want to pray that prayer, I can give you the words to the prayer. You have to say them. You have to mean them in your heart. Come on, church. Let's pray with those who want to make that decision. Say these words right now. Jesus, save me. I repent of all of my sin, of all my mistakes. I believe you died on the cross. And I believe you rose again. And I make you the Lord of my life. In Jesus' name. Now, Father, I pray for every person watching online in the room. God, every person listening, Lord, that you would do a miracle in their life. God, I thank you for the vision and the clarity that you're going to bring. God, I thank you for the freedoms that you're going to bring. God, I thank you for redemption. God, I thank you for chains being broken. God, I thank you for healing. I thank you, Jesus. You paid the price for our miracle. God, you paid the price with your stripes for our healing. God, you paid the price, Lord. I thank you, God, for all that you've done. Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice at the cross. And so, Lord, today we receive it. Lord, we open our hands. We receive, God. Give us new clarity. Give us vision, God. For those who don't know the next step, God, show your perspective. For those who feel trapped in their lifestyle, God, bring your freedom. For those, God, who have chaos in their lives, God, Holy Spirit, bring your peace. We pray it all in Jesus' name. We thank you in advance and we love you with all of our hearts. In Jesus' name, we pray and all the church said amen and amen. Come on, can we give God glory for what he's done today? Praise the Lord.